Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with students, postdocs, and other virologists so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackeray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On July 8, 2022, we talked with Patrick Kreischer, a graduate student at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health got his Bachelor's of Pharmaceutical Science and Doctor of Pharmacy degree at Duquesne University. He currently studies the immunopathology of respiratory virus infections during pregnancy. Uh, Thanks for talking with us today. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So hi, uh, I'm Patrick Kreischer. I am a, a PhD candidate at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health here at Johns Hopkins University. I'm now starting my fourth year in the fall, which is kind of crazy to think about um, in my PhD program. And I'm in the lab of Sauber Klein. um, And my thesis is really looking at biopathogenesis during pregnancy um, and how the immune response during pregnancy may impact both adverse outcomes to the mother as well as to the the offspring. Um, And then we also are you know, really interested in the development of mouse models of viral infections. So I've developed, I've worked on developing mouse models of, of influenza during pregnancy as well as Zika during pregnancy. And now, you know, SARS-CoV-2 uh, during pregnancy as well. Cool. And so before we get into the details of that work, can you take us back and uh, tell us how you first became interested in science and then virology? Sure, sure. So um, my story at the beginning, it was um, not very exciting. So I first went to, to pharmacy school. I did a, a two, four, um, bachelor's in pharmacy, farm D degree, um, at a school called Duquesne university. And I really did that because I didn't really know what I was doing, um, with my life and my, I have a, a cousin who's a pharmacist and she seemed like she was pretty happy with her life. So I, I, I pursued that. And while I was there, I realized that that wasn't really like the long-term path in terms of what I wanted to do. And I really, um, got really interested in science um, just through kind of like the working in labs. Um, and so I'll tell you, I like only had like, you know, basic biology, uh, like intro level biology in terms of like, you know, core courses. So I didn't really learn a lot of lab skills and things in the classroom. It was just like someone was, I had a professor who was like, hey, are you interested in research? And so my first research experience um, was actually working on, on tablet formulation. Um, and like the different properties of tablets that make them dissolve better in your stomach or get better absorbed um, to get, you know, the medication into your system to help you. Um, and I found there that I really liked the idea of scientific research. I liked the scientific process, but I wasn't really interested in, in tablet design. Um, and so luckily we had a pharmacology department, which had a few faculty that weren't exactly pharmacologists and who did a little bit more um, basic science research. Um, and so I, I rotated in a lab that was working on mouse models and rat models of Parkinson's. Um, and before ultimately I ended up in a lab, uh, the lab of Lauren O'Donnell uh, at Duquesne University. And uh, we were studying mouse models of viral infection uh, in the brain. Um, and so it was really a neurovirology lab, neuroimmunology lab. And that really got me kind of interested in, in both science um, again, and then also in this idea of viruses and the immune system. Um, So I spent most of my time when I wasn't in classes in the lab um, there, um, and the lab was a great experience. We actually got to go to ASV in in 2018, and that was the 
kind of the the nail in the coffin that I was like, okay, no, I want to I want to spend my career studying viruses. Um, and so to do that, I decided because I wanted to stay in academia, I wanted to have my own lab someday. Um, that I should probably go to grad school, get my PhD. And so when I was looking at, at programs, I really looked at programs that had faculty that had you know, good virologists that I was really interested in. I applied all over and then I ended up here and I was fortunate enough to get into this, uh, the program of molecular microbiology here at the, at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, um, which is where I am now. And then you know, I rotated in, in a bunch of virology labs um, before settling upon Sabra's lab, um, where I am now, and I'm super happy. And uh, I think I've had a great experience so far. I'm looking forward to, to ASB this summer, um, as well as, you know, life as a virologist. Right. And can you tell us sort of like what drew you to your graduate lab? Like when you were looking for a lab, you know, what were kind of the, some of the factors, I guess, that you were considering and kind of choosing a lab? Sure, absolutely. And so I think, you know, I do a, a good amount of advising for like in new PhD students, new master's students. And I always tell them that like, you know, it's important to have like, you know, research that you're interested in, but it's also really important to have a good fit, have a good mentor who will help you um, both through your PhD and really for like the rest of your career. Um, and so for me, I got really lucky that I got both of those things. You know, like I said, I was really interested in viruses, but, you know, I think that if, the, if there weren't any virology labs that I felt were a good fit, I may have, you know, been like, okay, well, maybe for my PhD, at least I could study bacteria, you know, pathogenesis is pathogenesis. Um, but I got really lucky in that the virology labs here were really great. Um, and so I, I chose Sabra's Lab A because I thought the research was really interesting. Um, I'm really interested in the development of mouse models. Um, and like I said, that's really what we do. And really, I think my, my interest going into it was really into uh, biopathogenesis more broadly. Um, and so I had really had the opportunity to not look at just one virus, but to look at, um, you know, multiple viruses in the context and in, in a way to kind of like, you know, for a thesis, you kind of have to focus down, but instead of focusing down on one virus, you kind of focused on, on this, the immunological state of pregnancy. Um, and so that way I could, you know, look at multiple viruses, cross compare, um, yeah. And then I think also Sabra is uh, a great mentor and has really helped introduce me and let me lead projects. And um, all of these things have really, I think, I, I, I picked up on a lot of these things early on in the rotation. And that's kind of what like solidified it for me um, as, as kind of the lab that I really wanted to work with. Cool. And can you tell us a little bit about the lab, like other than you, who's in it? Sure. So we have, so it's funny, when I first started, it was a, it was a smaller lab, but we have since grown, um, I think because uh, out of necessity, because, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, we went from a lab that worked on, on mostly influenza to now we work on influenza and SARS-CoV-2. And so, you know, a lot more work, a lot more funding, and so requires a lot more people. Um, and so right now, I think our lab is about 16 or 17. We just had, we're kind of in a, tr a transitionary period where people are leaving, people are joining. Um, but we have me, I'm kind of the senior PhD student now. Um, we have two more junior PhD students who are a year below me. Um, and then we have uh, two, well, we have one research tech and then another one who's joining. Um, and then we have three master's students we, at uh, here at MMI, we have a master's of science program, which is a two-year master's program, um, which is really research focused and really lets uh, master students get their own project and really um, 
get excited in science and really set them up for applying to either applying to a PhD or to getting a job in like industry um, or even another lab in academia. Um, so we have three master's students right now. Um, and then we have, at the moment, I think we have two, we have a few postdocs. We have two postdocs, one just joined, who's really great. Um, and then we have two like more senior research fellows. Um, and, and one of them is actually leaving us to, to start uh, as an assistant professor, um, which is very exciting too. Um, but yeah, so overall, you know, not the smallest lab, but it's also not like, you know, one of those like massive labs that have like 40 people. Right. Um, and can you tell us, I guess, before we get into your thesis work, just talk about sort of pregnancy and viral infection and pathogenesis just in general. So what is kind of known about that? Sure, sure. So it's actually really interesting. So a lot um, that is known about pregnancy and, and biopathogenesis has really been looking at pathogens that vertically transmit. So like things like the, the quote unquote torch pathogens, like, you know, Zika, CMV, um, these viruses that can directly infect the placenta, which is the organ of the maternal fetal interface and transmit to the babies. Um, and so, you know, um, a lot has been studied in the context of this maternal fetal barrier and how it can uh, prevent against infection. Um, but in addition to this, you know, direct infection and this direct barrier, there's also this idea of pregnancy changing the immune system. And so um, early on in immunology, people thought, uh, that, you know, pregnancy was really this like immunosuppressed state that like the fetus was like an, an organ that had to not be rejected. Um, but I think as science has evolved and as we have learned more, we have learned that that's really not the case, that it's a lot more nuanced than that. And that there, you know, there are immunological changes that prevent um, and they're, they're really regulatory to prevent the rejection of the fetus. But it's not like you're completely immunosuppressed as if you were like on like long term steroids or, or something like that. Um, but as a result, you know, it's a very unique population for studying not just those viruses that directly infect babies, but also respiratory viruses. Um, and there's a long, there's a decent history of epidemiological evidence, like from the 2009 pandemic, where pregnant women uh, had, you know, increased risk of hospitalization, um, as well as potential adverse risks uh, for the offspring, like long term. This was the the influenza pandemic? Yes, this was the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. Um, and so that's really where we got a lot of our, our information on influenza. Um, but really then I think after people started looking at it because of that, people started looking at like seasonal flu, people started looking back at the, the 1918 uh, flu pandemic and, and seeing very similar things. Um, and then also not just viruses, people have looked at the risks of like respiratory uh, bacteria, respiratory pneumonia during pregnancy and found that, um, that pregnancy uh, and pregnant women are often at increased risk for adverse outcomes from those as well. Cool. And then um, I guess then can you tell us sort of what is your specific thesis question um, and then potentially how, what techniques you are using to address it? Sure, sure. So um, my thesis is really looking at this role of the immune system as and potentially inflammation and maternal sickness um, and how that may impact both the mom as well as the babies um, during viral infection. And so we're doing a lot of that work with influenza um, because, like I said, a lot of the work has been looking at viruses where there's direct infection like CMV, Zika, where we can, you know, you know, you can link, okay, there's direct viral infection of the placenta of the fetus, and this causes bad things to happen. But even in Zika, we and others have shown that it, it's not just the virus, that it's actually 
the inflammation that results um, from viral infection that can cause some of these adverse outcomes. And so my, my thesis is really, okay, so what if you don't have the direct viral infection at all? What if you only have inflammation? Could that be mediating the, um, the adverse fetal outcomes and, and, and as well as maternal sickness? Um, and so, you know, we, to do that, we wanted to develop a mouse model. Um, and so that was, you know, uh, in its own way, technically challenging because, um, you know, you can just, you, you can order mice very easily, but ordering pregnant mice is a little bit more complicated, or if you want to breed them in house. Um, and then there's a lot of questions about, you know, what strain of mice and things like that. So I got to learn a lot about mice, um, as a quick aside and, and related to that, you know, we use outbred mice for all of our studies. Um, because if, as you can imagine in people, you know, when you um, have a baby, um, the baby is not the same genetically as you, right? They have antigens from the mom as well as from the dad. Um, whereas when you use inbred mice, like, you know, BABC or black six mice, which are commonly used, um, the baby and the mom are genetically identical. And so, you know, that mechanism of tolerance of that fetus that I talked about earlier, you know, may not be the same in those inbred mouse strains. And, you know, other groups have gotten around this by like crossing like a BALB-C with a black six. So you have like a mixed offspring. Um, but we decided to use outbred mice for that because we have a collaborator who has looked at, has done a lot of reproductive research um, for a long time. And that's what they've used in models of like LPS and, and non-viral models of um, adverse fetal outcomes. So, uh, but to get to techniques, like I said, um, it's a lot of mouse work. So we're doing a lot of mouse. So I'm learning, you know, kind of that like, quote unquote, like old school virology, where you have a virus, you stick it in the mouse, you see what happens. So we're, we're doing a lot of monitoring them, like, okay, do they look sick? Do they have, um, we have a clinical scoring system. So, you know, when you and, and, and people in general get sick, right, we, we don't feel well, we can tell people that we're sick. Um, but, you know, mice can't do that. They can't tell me that, oh, I feel like crap, I have, I have flu, right? So uh, instead, what they do is they change their behavior. So they don't eat as much and so they or drink as much, so they lose some weight so we can track their weight loss over time. Um, they also get hypothermic. They lose temperature in contrast to us and people who you know, get a fever. Um, so we can take their temperature every day and, and monitor that over time as well. Um, they'll also have some signs that are similar to what happens with people. We have uh, dyspnea or shortness of breath where their breathing becomes irregular. Um, they get... Uh, Piloerection, which is where the their fur kind of sticks up. It's like the mouse equivalent of like goosebumps when you like have a fever. Um, and so we monitor that throughout infection as well. Um, another thing that we do that's really an advantage of mouse models is we can, you know, euthanize them and then we can collect their tissues to look at virus directly in the site of replication. So for example, in the lungs, um, and, and we can sample directly from the lungs and see, okay, how much infectious virus is there? Um, and that's something that, you know, there are there have been other studies of influenza during pregnancy in mice, and that's kind of an open question in terms of some studies have shown that uh, during pregnancy, um, there's higher viral titers in the lungs um, in pregnant mice than in non-pregnant mice. Um, but others, show, others have shown that there is not. Um, and so that kind of gets back to the question of the role of, of virus versus the immune system um, in, in kind of the disease pathogenesis. So we can, you know, uh, smush up the lungs, homogenize them, measure virus either by like plaque assay or, or TCIE50 um, to measure infectious virus. We can also take viral RNA, measure virus that way. 
Um, and actually we have done that as well in, um, in, the, in the placenta and the fetus, just to confirm that in our model, like we see in people, there isn't vertical transmission, that it's, you know, any adverse effects that we see is gonna be mediated by this, uh, by, by non-direct virus infection, whether that be the maternal immune system or change in hormones or something else. Um, so we, we do that. We also are looking at immune cells. Um, so we do a lot of flow cytometry um, where we, you know, you look at different markers on different cells um, to kind of differentiate them, um, whether that be in the lungs during infection or in the blood or even in the placenta, um, because it's, you know, it's in the, as the organ of maternal fetal interface, there is, there can be infiltration of the immune, of the immune cells from mom as well as resident immune cells. Um, so we can look there as well and see if there are any changes of that um, as a result of infection. Cool. And are you going to be talking about some of this work at ASV this year? Yes, I am very excited. So I have a, a short presentation. I'm in the pathogenesis seminar. I'm on Tuesday at 1.45. It's W54-2. Uh, I'm in pathogenesis, which is my favorite session, of course. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about some of our findings um, and how um, influenza during pregnancy can have can cause adverse fetal outcomes and adverse outcomes for the mom. Great. And can you, I guess, reflect a little bit, there's been a lot of discussion in the context of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic that uh, pregnant women are at increased risk for themselves and then potentially for fetal outcome as well. Can you discuss a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. So, so like I said, we had kind of been working on pregnancy and viral infections well before the pandemic. So like we kind of mobilized, and this was before my time in the lab, um, during the Zika you know, outbreak epidemic in 2016. Um, and then when I joined, um, Sabra and I kind of worked to really develop this mouse model of influenza during pregnancy. And so when the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic um, happened, which is really when I was first starting in the lab, um, I got the opportunity to help with some other studies of SARS-CoV-2. Um, we, we developed a hamster model, for example, to study sex differences. It, it kind of made sense to, it was like, okay, so we, we definitely should look at this um, in, in our mouse model. And so really, um, like you said, absolutely. There is, um, now I think a lot of evidence that SARS-CoV-2 infection during pregnancy is really not great either for the mom or the baby. Um, pregnant women are at increased risk of adverse, adverse events like hospitalization, ventilation, uh, mechanical ventilation, et cetera. Um, and then there are some more, um, there have been other studies showing that the fetuses and the babies are at increased risk for, um, you know, what we call adverse pregnancy outcomes, like being small for gestational age or increased risk of stillbirths, um, et cetera. And I think there was a recent study that just came out showing that um, for women who were infected with SARS-CoV-2 in the third trimester, um, there was an increased risk of neurological um, adverse effects on the baby one year out. Um, and so I really think it's, it's an area that definitely needs more study um, and definitely something that we are working on. So in addition to the flu work that I'm gonna be talking about ASV, we're also working on, on developing a mouse model of SARS-CoV-2 during pregnancy using some of the mouse adapted uh, viruses um, that you know, can infect mice. Right, because I guess the, um, the regular, I guess the, the normal um, SARS-CoV strains wouldn't infect your outbred mice, right? Yes. So I actually, so we found that really our outbred mice in terms of pathogenesis, both with flu 
um, and, and now with SARS-CoV-2, do about the same as like a black six mice, uh, black six mouse. But you're correct that early on um, in the pandemic, um, the original strains did not infect mice at all. And so groups um, like Ralph Barrick's group um, and, and others really developed these mouse adapted viruses using things that they learned from SARS original, as well as from MERS to make um, you know, modifications to the mouse spike protein, as well as just doing passaging through mice. Um, and so that's really what we utilize. But um, kind of a, a fun fact is that now um, kind of nature did some mouse adapting on its own and some more of the recent variants actually can infect both inbred and outbred mice. Um, so really starting with, you know, um, beta and then, and then Omicron and then mu and now Omicron, um, really any um, virus that has that uh, N501Y mutation in its spike protein, that seems to allow those viruses to better in bind to mouse ACE2 and then better infect mice. And whether that infection is enough to cause disease, you know, depends a lot on the model. So we found that um, you often to get real disease pathogenesis and disease sickness in some of these mice, both inbred outbred mice um, with some of these, you know, not mouse adapted viruses, but later pandemic viruses and variants, you kind of have to age the mice. So they're a little bit older, um, you know, kind of similar to what we see in people, right? So young people are not as uh, at such a high risk for severe COVID. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think the, this idea of mouse adapting viruses or, or and developing better models is uh, a really interesting space, both you know before COVID, but now especially with COVID, um, and actually something that I think is will be really interesting for me and my career uh, in in the long term as I'm really interested in the development of mouse models of, of viruses that you know maybe at the moment don't have mouse models. Right. Um, so speaking of that. Um... What are your thoughts for the future in your career? What are you wanting to do? Um, are you gonna do a postdoc or what do you wanna do? Absolutely. So this is definitely something that I've been doing a lot of, of thinking about both before and, and now recently um, is that, you know, I definitely wanna do kind of the more traditional path. I wanna do a postdoc. I wanna start my own lab one day, be a professor. Um, I kind of knew that going, going into grad school. I think mainly because, you know, I, I had a lot of, knowledge and, and in some ways experience from my pharmacy degree that it was like, okay, like, you know, I already spent six years in school. Do I really want to do my PhD? Right. So I had to do a lot of thinking then. Uh, and so I, I kind of knew then, and I still know now, and I think if anything, going through grad school has really solidified that for me. So, um, you know, going into my fourth year, I'm starting to think, okay, you know, where do I want to do my postdoc? And I'm really excited for ASV not just for the science, but also for networking and to talk to some people who, you know, maybe I didn't talk to since when I was applying to grad school and, you know, maybe I interviewed with them. Um, and yeah. And like I said, I went to ASB in 2018, which was a really wonderful experience. But then because I had graduated, I didn't make it to 2019 ASB. And then the last two ones have been virtual, which has been great, which was great. Um, but I feel like, you know, isn't the same, especially in the context of networking. Um, so yeah, so I definitely want to have my own lab. I'm really interested in, in, in viruses and, and viral immunology, as well as the development of, of mouse models. And really, um, you know, I think there's a, a famous statistician who said something on the lines of, and this isn't a perfect quote, like, um, all models are bad, some models are useful. Um, and so I think there's, 
there's a lot to be gained from from the development of mouse models. I mean, I know there are people out there who like are like, oh, if it's not in humans or like, or it's not in monkeys, like I don't really care. But I think that you know, there's a lot to be to gained and understood from mouse models, especially in populations where you know human studies have are almost never done. Like for example, pregnancy. You know, there's not a lot of studies of vaccination. There's not a lot of studies. Um, of, of infection or even drugs in pregnancy. And we often rely on, you know, studies after things have been approved and they're given to pregnant women who, you know, it's, they're given the option of, oh, just talk to your physician and make that personal choice. Whereas, you know, from those studies, we know that all, a lot of these things are very safe during pregnancy. Like we know now that the, the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine is very safe during pregnancy and, and can prevent a lot of these adverse outcomes that uh, of SARS infection during pregnancy. Um, but a lot of those things, you know, we could have learned some of those things earlier if we had studied them in mouse models and, you know, especially mouse models of pregnancy. I think one advantage is that mouse gestation is just shorter, right? It's, it's 20 days versus, you know, the, the long you know, nine month period for a person. And so you can do more studies, um, and really get more information. Um, so yeah, right. so you know, I don't know what viruses I'll, I'll work on. I don't know what populations I'll look at, but I do really want to, you know, focus on biopathogenesis um, and, and, and have my own lab someday. That's like my, my that's the dream. Cool. Um, well, thanks for talking with us. Um, and we look forward to hearing your talk at ASV. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, and other podcast providers, or at lmtv.podbean.com.